Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, Cameron and I are joined by a nearly 20-year veteran of the PGA Tour, a winner multiple times over, Ryan Palmer. And I think especially after this chat, I figured out that after all these talks that we've done on the podcast, my absolute favorite chats are when we have a guy like Ryan on who has seen it all and experienced it all. They've made their own mistakes and and learned from those. They've seen the mistakes that others have made. And Ryan has taken all those lessons, the the failures and successes, and turned it into nearly two decades on the PGA Tour, the absolute pinnacle of golf, where he has been incredibly consistent year in and year out. And now, at 44 years old, he's playing some of the best golf of his career. Guys like Ryan have clearly figured something out, and he's kind enough to join us this week and share some of that wisdom. You can tell from hearing him talk, his passion and his drive to continue to get better is a fire that burns just as bright now as it did when he first came out on the PGA Tour. And it's so fun to chat with him and learn from him. We are really grateful that he joined us and that you are tuning in. So please enjoy the chat with Ryan. Uh, Before we get into it, a quick word from our partners at Total Golf Trainer. If you're listening to this, I'll assume that you've listened to other past episodes. And if you haven't already went out and bought our favorite training aid, the TGT 3.0 kit, I'm not really sure what you're doing at this point. You're clearly trying to get better. So why not use the tool that we use in 99.9% of our lessons every day? It can be used in all aspects of the game. You can use it for full swing, putting, short game, and you can customize how you use it in your swing. Just use one of the multiple attachments provided in the kit, bend the little foam rod in any number of positions to receive feedback on whatever technical cue that you wish to monitor. We appreciate their support and are happy to send you to a purchase product that we believe in. Go to TotalGolfTrainer.com, use the promo code EARNYOUREDGE for a discount. But now please enjoy episode 85 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Ryan Palmer. We're going to jump into it. And I got a two-part question. I think it's only fair that Cameron and I are from Texas. We kind of know what it's like. But if you could, for our listeners, paint a picture of what it's like to grow up as a young kid in Amarillo, Texas. And then kind of the second part of that is is reading that early on, trying to be elite at golf wasn't necessarily something that you were really uh, had decided on until maybe high school. So I just want to paint a picture of early involvement, Amarillo and in golf, what that looked like. Uh, yeah, growing up, I mean, golf was pretty big in Amarillo for sure. Uh, I wasn't much of a golfer as a young kid. I, I was in other sports. I played soccer, obviously, but I was big into baseball and basketball. Played a little football through eighth grade, but um, baseball and basketball seemed to be my passion growing up. But my, my dad put a set of golf clubs in my hand when I was nine. We went and played Southwest Golf Course. There's houses on that course now, but uh, I shot 118, first round ever. And uh, <laughs> how I remember that, I don't know. But anyways... You know, I just kept getting into the game, practicing here and there, playing for fun. But I was always into basketball and baseball. Those always came first, baseball and basketball did. And then uh just kept getting older and, you know, kept going to the to Tesco's Country Club where uh, my parents were members. And I kept practicing. There was a, there was a guy there, a, a black fella named Don Allen. He worked the bag room and he took a liking to me. And it's funny because he would always come get me out of the pool and say, come on, Ryan, it's time to go hit balls. And so he was kind of always my, my driving force, but, uh, I just kept learning the game. You know what, what, one thing that just kept driving me is when you hit that shot and you hit that shot, like, Oh, I can't stop doing that. It feels so good. And when you hit that iron shot and how it felt come off the face, like, Oh, I got to do that again. But for some reason it took me another hour to do it. Well, I kept doing it, kept doing it. And that's what just kept driving me to the game. And more and more, just that feeling I got 
of certain shots. And then I wanted to go hit it again. I wanted to go chip another ball in. I wanted to go make these certain putts. It was weird how I just kept wanting, wanting, wanting. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I kept going and basketball and baseball were still there, but I wasn't getting any taller in basketball. And when baseball ended, I, um, I was playing right field half the game. And that's where baseball careers go to die in right field <laughs> as a little leaguer. But I just kept playing golf and Amarillo was a huge golfing community. It, it turned into a lot of great amateurs. My dad was a decent player, nothing great, but, uh, he never pushed me. I just, he just dropped me off. And, you know, one of my closest longtime friends is Ty Cox, whose dad is Sherwin Cox. I'm sure you guys both know. Yeah. And we used to, we'd go to Ross Rogers at 7 a.m. when Sherwin would go and we'd be there a little dark. And Beautiful. I mean, you try 45 holes of golf, sometimes 54, depends how fast we could play. And, um, you know, we had days like that. So, uh, just grew to the love of the game. At the front end there, clearly, you know me and Corey misspoke for our for our listeners. I'm clearly not from America, but I still, I do call America home now. I've been here more than half my life, but certainly growing up in Australia, particularly where my family was from, country Victoria, it was a town not unlike Amarillo. It was uh, flat, it was windswept, it was a farming community and golf was just one of the many sports that um, you, you were kind of exposed to as kids. And uh, interesting you said that we share even more similarities other than just a different country, but a similar town and similar kind of um, supporting environment around that. I had a, a person at the club that was foundational in terms of kind of continuing to light my spark as well. And it's, it's, it's those people in our lives that are so critical and so important just as much as our our parents are especially on a a day like today being mother's day right so also as a side i also remember the very first round of golf i played at dorset golf club or dorset links and i shot 120 so you got me beat by two anyway we can probably (laughs) edit edit that footnote out um Nonetheless, were there other critical people at the club or at the community that supported your growth as a competitive golfer when you ultimately decided to uh, maybe specialize in the sport of golf? And I think I read it correctly that it wasn't till quite late in high school that you maybe envisaged professional golf as a career path for you. I quit baseball up until ninth grade and then basketball was still, I was still loving to play and I played a junior varsity as a sophomore. And I remember going to the coach's office and he says, look, you're probably going to make varsity as a junior next year, but uh, I know you're getting more serious about golf and stuff. And uh, Coach Segura was his name. And he said, look, you're going to make varsity, but you won't play very much. And he didn't go any further when I said, you know what, then I'll I'll end my career now. And uh, (laughs) that was the end of my basketball career. So I went straight to golf. But uh, I had um, numerous guys back home, uh, head pro and George Priolo, who's there at Ross Rogers now. I mean, I can go through a bunch. Uh, Alan Coe is there at Tascosa now. He was very instrumental in my game. One of my first few probably real teachers I had learning to play the game competitively and, and getting better because my dad could only teach me so much. He was a big part of teaching me, you know, how to kind of act, how to grow up, how to conduct myself, you know, how I am to other people. He never really taught me the game. Small things, sure, but um, it was actually hanging around him and his friends and, and of course, you know, Alan Coe was a big part of my, my game itself, but just the small things off the golf course dad taught me is, you know, helped me become the man and today. But, you know, it wasn't for Don Allen making me hit all his range balls at, at Tascosa. And then, uh, of course, Alan Coe was there a lot for me as well. It was uh, those, I look to those two guys for sure on, on making my game, give me that boost I needed, I guess you could say, and, uh, and teach yeah. me what I needed to be taught. And, uh, you know, just, it seemed like I got better from there each and every year. It seemed like, and, right. uh, it's crazy where it, where it's gotten me. 
we've never had this conversation, but I do remember you. I was at Texas Tech. I was there on the golf team, 94 through 97, and I knew your name and I knew Ty's name. And um, what surprised me is neither of you picked to come an hour down the highway and join us as Texas Tech. I mean, my gosh, what I could have taught you about the nightlife at Tech that you probably already Funny. knew about. <laughs> That's probably why you decided Funny. not to come. Funny stories. I forgot who that co- who the coach was, older guy. Tommy Wilson. Probably him. I remember somebody told us at one time we were getting recruited, possibly, and there was a comment that nobody from Amarillo was ever good enough to play for Tech. <laughs> So I remember that. And then he never recruited any of us. Right. Not Ty. And Ty went to Texas A&M on a full scholarship. I went to North, North Texas. But uh, yeah, there was never a phone call conversation about Texas Tech at all. So I guess you guys are too good for us. Apparently, we were, Amarillo boys. Appa- apparently we're, a, lot's, a lot's changed since then. And the golf program at Tech now is, yeah, it's legit, as you know. Yeah, there you go. Hey, so, so after college, we, we want to go into professional career a little bit. So you turned pro in 2000 and spent some time mini tours, tight lies and Hooters tour from what I can tell. And then decided to go to Q school in 2002. Why wait from 2000 to 2002 to take your shot at Q school? Well, before I get into that, you know, there's one guy I will say I owe a lot to is of course, David Foster at Texas, North Texas, but coach Bob Ellis at Texas A&M gave me a chance when I wanted to come there after my first year. And he taught me a lot as well about the game at A&M. So I owe a lot of, I owe a lot of my career to him as well. But when I turned pro in 2000, it was, um, you know, I went to, I went to Q school that, that fall of 2000. And I was actually a, a funny story. I, I made it all the way to finals, but I was second alternate. So they had alternates back then. He Slocum was first alternate. I was second alternate. We were sitting on the range together at finals in Palm Springs. Unreal. And so, of course, never, get, never made it. So, of course, uh, you fall back on second stage. So we played the mini tours at the uh, Hooters tour. I played for 14 events, played the tight last tour. Went to Q School in 01. I don't think I made it through first stage that year. And then uh, stayed on many tours as well, obviously with Tight Lies Tour. And had a great 02. I think I played 15 events, made all 15 cuts, won four times. And so I, I was I knew I could play the game. And that was never a doubt. And then went to Q School in 02. And then um, made it through second stage. And then um, called uh, a good friend of mine, James Edmondson, who had happened that we meet in high school. And he played Houston. He played some mini tours as well and took him to the finals at Palm Springs and finished in 30, 32nd, somewhere around there. And um, got my nationwide tour card, Corn Ferry, as you know it now, and then played all three Corn Ferry seasons. So uh, I spent three glorious years at Q School and uh, <laughs> made it through the third time. When you got to the Corn Ferry or web.com, buy.com, Nike, whatever we want to call it, I don't remember. It's, it's, it's changed so many times right there. You tasted immediate success in winning the second event out in my home country of Australia. And maybe this was or wasn't a surprise. I'm interested to find out for you, number one, just a short answer, whether it was a surprise to you that you recognize your game leveled up at that standard so quick. And and then what was it that you feel like you learned in those three years playing mini tour golf? And you just alluded to it before. It was never a question I could play the game. Was it just those winning the events, the accolades that you, let's say, accomplished playing that, that, that three years of mini tour golf that gave you the confidence to step forward and know that you could um, get onto the Corn Ferry Tour and, and succeed? I think you hit the nail on the head right there, Cameron. When you... I'll, said winning i won one or two times in 2000 on the tight lies never won in the hooters tour and these are small events in the summer times they weren't really great purses 
And then I won in 01 on the tight lines as well. And then the four times in 02. And what I took from that to the corn ferry nationwide that year is winning. And mm-hmm. that's what I try to tell a lot of people. What can I tell my young kid? What's he need to learn to do the most? I said, you need to learn to win. I think that's the number one thing is learning to win. Because you know, you can't win every week. You know, if you look at a sport and the game of golf, you know, we lose every week. If you look at it that way, because we you, there's only one winner every single week. And but finishing top fives, top tens, those are huge confidence boosters. And uh, I learned to win, you know, in those three years. And then it took me to the Corn Ferry that year, missed the cut in Australia, Adelaide, Australia, and then um, went over to Christchurch, New Zealand. And it was 163 on a Friday. And then from there, I ended up winning by two or three shots on as my first Corn Ferry event. And so. I think winning those events in those mini tour years, it just helped me get to the next level. And, you know, the one goal I set out each and every year when I play golf is I want to get better in one aspect of the game. And I've done that since high school, I feel like. And, and to this day, I feel like there's a, every year I can look back and go, oh, I got better here. You know, whether it's short game, chipping, putting, driving, uh, mental, whatever, physically, there's something that got better each and every year. And uh, I carried that over in 03 from those three years of, of winning on the, on the mini tours. and. You know, it's carried over to my PGA Tour career as well. So that's that to me, winning each and every year, you just learn to win. One in high school, a one in college, a one in the mini tour level. So I learned to win at every level and it's carried me to where I am today. So many follow up questions that I think probably Corey has, and I'll let you go, Corey. But we're, uh, there's so many that I want to come back to there as well. Corey, you've got something in the in the chamber. Well, yeah, I was gonna I was gonna speak over you there because I'm just curious how much of that confidence overlaps over to when you the next year when you're making your debut on the PGA Tour because we talk a lot of the young guys that are early on in that process, and no matter who they beat up on in high school or college or even mini tours there's a moment where you get out there and I think that it's, it's fairly common and understandable to look around at the best players in the world and wonder, Hey, do I belong here? Like, am I good enough to be here right now? And that's something that players can struggle with. Cameron and I have certainly had conversations like that. So was it similar for you? Did you have that process and how do you overcome that? Is there a milestone? Is there a moment that you can look back at in that early in that 2004 season where you say, okay, I I actually am good enough. Or is it just a matter of overtime? you get more and more comfortable being in that on that level yeah no doubt it i mean it wasn't in 04 where i believed i was going to be out here for 17 seasons i mean it's <laughs> this probably happened four or five years ago that moment I, I think uh but no when i went to when i was a rookie in 04 now it was a oh my gosh moment you know i'm here i've made it but i still had that confidence that, okay i can play this game but now can i really play this game on these tougher golf courses against the best players and the the year went on nothing special. I was still learning, you know, still trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. And you're also kind of almost half asleep. Cause you're like, is this dream, is this dream true <laughs> <laughs> when you're playing that 04 season? And it was Mississippi. I, uh, ended up finishing second place to Fred Funk who won the golf tournament. And that put me over the number to keep my card. And so that was like, Oh my gosh, I just, I just did it. I, I kept my card for next season. I'm going to finish 125 on the money list. I'm gonna, oh, it felt like you won an event, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh. But then a few weeks later, here I am in the most magical place in the world, Walt Disney World. My wife and I are walking around Magic Kingdom Saturday night. I shot 68, 68, 68, I think. I vaguely remember. And I'm six shots back, teeing off. I can't remember what time I teed off, but six shots back on the lead. Now you're thinking about it. I've already kept my card. I'm happy. I don't care, right? And one turkey leg later and a 62 later, I'm sitting there with a three-shot win. <laughs> <my first> win. <laughs> beating beating 
then Vijay Singh, who won nine times that season, he was on top of the golfing world. And, uh, I mean, it was a like, oh, my gosh, did this just really happen? And uh, here yeah. I am, uh, a rookie on a tour as a PGA Tour winner. So uh, you never know what's going to happen. That's that's the beauty of this game. You, as long as you just keep working and believing. And I was always believing I could play this game. And do I believe I was going to play this long? Probably not. I had a you know a good friend who um, managed me for quite some time, and uh, Dennis Harrington. He was my manager for a good six, seven years. And uh, I always go back to what he said, and he said it best. And I, I tell a lot of people the same thing is, it's going to take you a good seven to 10 years to feel like you're established on the PGA Tour. That's how hard it is and how good these players are. And he really wasn't lying. Even though I did win in 08 at the Ginster America Classic, you know, it probably wasn't until 2010, six years later at Sony Open, when I finally said, you know what, this is something I'll be out here till I'm, I'm done playing. So uh, there's many moments that I can look back and go, and still wonder, am I going to still be here for another couple more years or whatever? But I just, I keep seeing to getting better and better. And a lot of us do it, just believe in myself, knowing, right. knowing, playing my game. And the one thing I see a lot of young guys do today on tour is they come out here, change equipment. Oh, I got to get this swing coach. I want to do this. I want to do what that player does. And you don't ever see them again. So uh, I always said, bring what bring to the golf course what brung you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to go back and I want to go back because I've always been interested to ask this question to any person that I cross that's done what you guys do. And that's the psychology or the freedom that you just described when you said, I just locked up my card. I go to the most magical place on earth, Disney. I'm essentially playing with quote unquote house money. And our friend Jordan Spieth talks about playing with house money a lot and the psychological freedom that comes with that. And the impediments that seemingly just disappear right in front of you, find yourself in contention and, and ultimately arrive at your first PGA tour win. And the question that I have, have you figured out a way to kind of reverse engineer that to where you can just step to the T step to any event with that house money mindset? Yes. And no, I guess, uh, it's easy for me, not easy for me, but I stepped to the T each and every year, these last couple of years after, uh, you know, obviously John and I won the Zurich. When you're sitting on that exemption, that winning exemption for a couple of years, that's huge. I mean, like you said, you're playing with house money in a sense, but there's a playoffs to be still made. There's a even though you have your card locked up, you still have to play well to make the playoffs. You want to your your goal is to get to Atlanta each and every year. So just because I've got an exemption through 2022 or 23, that doesn't mean anything to me because I want to get back to Atlanta each and every year. I want to play well in the majors. I want to win. That's what drives me. And you know, it's a huge drug to me. The addiction I have with getting in contention, getting in that moment, almost like hitting shots and seeing people yell your name or say good things on the golf course. It just makes your head and your chest stick out. Right. The feeling you can't explain because it's like, <laughs> it feels so great. Cause I know I earned it. I've worked hard for it and I've, I've built myself up to this point. And, uh, I've never been more proud of myself this past couple of years. Cause I know I've earned it off the golf course when I'm at home practicing, you know, mentally, physically, the work in the gym, people don't realize what a 44 year old goes through. <laughs> <laughs> week in week out i mean it's i mean there's times that i just want to i told jennifer i said i'm just tired i don't want to i don't want to go anywhere i don't want to do anything i don't, don't want to go to the gym but i yeah. make myself go let's use this no let's use this as an opportunity ryan to illuminate to, to to shed light on the time commitment and the physical commitment and the mental commitment to, can you uh, put hours behind it can you uh, calories burnt express in any way for the listeners the the time that, I mean, it, it's unfathomable for me. And I'm on the inside of the bubble looking at you guys finishing on a Sunday, flying to the next event and heading out there Monday afternoon again to grind. Yeah. For instance, I just finished an event on Sunday night. Like you said, I'll, we'll fly out Sunday night or Monday morning. 
well, usually that Monday afternoon, I, I've got to go, well, in COVID days, I got to go test, you know, get all that, all that out of the way. But there might be a putting session Monday afternoon, or I'm, I may want to go hit balls. And then Tuesday, it's pr- get up in the morning, you know, go do a light stretch, practice a little bit. You, you play nine, I play nine holes now just because I, I know the golf courses, but there's a, a 30, 45 minute workout Tuesday afternoon. There's a 20, 30 minute warm up before the, the Wednesday pro am, play nine holes, maybe a practice session a little bit after. Maybe a light workout Thursday and then or Wednesday. And then prior to each round on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I've got a thirty-minute workout I do every day. So uh, eight a.m. tea time, I'm usually up at four forty-five, five o'clock because I know I'm, I've got a thirty-minute workout ahead of me. So uh, those are the moments that I find myself saying, "I'm just too tired to do this today. I just want to, you know, spend forty-five minutes in the hotel room." But I keep telling myself, "It's no, it's time to go. You got to, you got to. This is what you want to do. Let's go right. do this." And that's what, and a lot of it has to do with the, the desire and the want of wanting to be, you know, keep moving forward and keep achieving my goals that I've set for myself. And, uh, you know, that's the the work I put into it. And then when I'm home after a three week stretch, I take Mondays off when I get home. And a lot of times I'm at, uh, Troy Van Beeson's place, uh, seeing, seeing him for some body work, an hour workout. I'll do an hour workout on Thursday. Now I'm throwing in that with going to see Randy Thursday, Friday, Randy Smith, who I work mm-hmm. with. That's on a, a Friday or Saturday. I'm I'm usually playing one or two rounds during that that four day stretch as well. So uh, and then it's not ne- on to the next tournament. So you're talking about one or two days of rest on my off weeks. But I know I've got to keep going to keep my body healthy, keep my mind fresh, and keep everything going. So that's it's a lot of work put into it, and uh, yeah. a lot of great things paid off in the end. On the Earn Your Edge podcast, we often talk about the importance of skill development and how all of these great players that we chat with on the podcast work on their technique and their form, but that's really only half the battle when it comes to performing your best. You've got to have the right equipment, and nothing will do more to improve your driver performance than getting fit by an authorized Titleist fitting specialist. And after so many conversations with world-class players, it becomes very clear how unique each individual and their game can be. There are no stock players, no stock swings, so there should be no stocks setups. With outstanding featured shafts and a new premium partnership with Graphite Design, Tylus has all the tools to get your game dialed and give you the confidence needed to lower your scores. Visit Tylus.com to learn more about the TSI drivers and to schedule a fitting today. I love that you share what that looks like in detail because I know everybody listening has a, has a new appreciation. And you talk about not only doing that week to week, we've got an 18 year career that we're looking at here. And so it's, it's been done for a long time. Smiles on the tires. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. And you know, Cam and I have had, I don't know, we've had 80 of these podcasts where we're talking to really good players and trying to learn stuff like this. And one of the things, first things that we do when we're kind of researching is we just look at, let's look at what the years look like. What do the FedEx cup finishes look like? Let's get a big picture of a career. And for you, we've got 18 years that we're looking at. And the thing that stands out to me more than anything else is, is the level of consistency. And I was a little surprised to hear you say that, yeah, just tell four or five years ago, I feel established when I'm looking at what the stats are year after year, what the FedEx cup finishes are year after year. And normally we're able to tell this story of kind of peaks and valleys for players of when they're performing well and and when uh, it, that performance wanes. But for you, from what it looks like to the outside, at least, it's been really, really steady. And, and now at 44, playing some of your best golf. So 
uh, the um, long winded way. I, I want to ask you because so many of our listeners will want to know what is the secret or what would you say is the reason why you've been able to find that level of consistency? Because obviously every golfer in the world wants to be consistent. And, and for you, I see that. So I'm hoping we'll drill down more, but I'm hoping you can maybe enlighten us a little bit. Oh, I wish I knew what the secret was. <laughs> no, I know you're asking. Um, you know, I'm blessed to have the ability to play a game. First of all, I mean, it's, it's nothing you can just pick up obviously. And, but a lot of us do it just, it's still, I go back to hope, obviously believing what I do and loving to play the game. And I think number one, I love to play the game. I love to practice. I love to play. I love to be out there. I never once ever looked at it and said, I've got to go to work. This is my job. I've never thought of it that way. I've always thought the money we make on this is a bonus to me. So I've always looked at it as a, a thrill and a, and a want to go play where a lot of guys look at it. Maybe it could be their job. They look at it as a job maybe or something, but I never thought of it as a job for me. And then in this past five, six, seven years, I've taken what I do. I don't, I've never tried to change my game. I've never tried to adjust what I do. It's uh, I've taken what I know how to do and how I know how to play the game. And you know, the one thing Randy Smith and I've done is I've been able to take the left side of the golf course, how to play. I've, I've changed my game a little bit since, you know, 2011. I used to hit a big draw. Now I'm, I rarely can draw my driver if I try to. And, uh, I'm able to take one side of the golf course out of play and it's kept me in play a lot more. And, you know, just my ball striking is taking on a whole new level. I think these past three or four or five years. And, uh, it's just being able to hit one shot. I'm not worried about hitting the big hook. I can stand over a lot of shots. No, I'm not going to hit a left. And that's a lot. That's huge. And then, uh, you know, the main thing to me, just working on my short game. It's always been probably my weakest point. My wedge game and my short game has been my weakest, but I've worked on it a lot. I've utilized a lot of great players. Uh, Steve Stricker this year, I, I played nine holes with him and uh, learned a lot from him as well. So, uh, you know, I've watched a lot of time. I've learned a lot of shots watching Jordan over these years. And, uh, you know, some of the shots he hits around the greens, I've tried to, I work on those at home, trying to practice some of these bumping runs he hits and, you know, there's certain shots I know I can't hit, but there's a lot I can, I know I'm able, I'm able to hit. It's hard to say what one thing, why I'm so consistent. And to me, it's just, I know I can play the game. I, I've, I've gotten to that point. How I got there was hard work for sure. Um, and just a lot of belief in myself. And uh, when you play well, you can draw on that. And I've been fortunate to play a lot of great golf and, uh, you know, always draw on that. If, if I've got certain putts, if I'm struggling, struggling with my putting, I go back to a lot of putts I've made in the past. I can go back to two putts I made at a, uh, a couple years ago, uh, one was to make the cut, and another putt was to make the 54 hole cut. Really? You know, they're not important; they're not big putts on t for tournament wins or whatever, but they're crucial putts on a certain day. And you know, you don't need to make a putt to win a golf tournament to to have to that be memorable. Right? Going. It's yeah. huge. It's huge. I mean, little putts here and there are huge. And like I said, this we were—I forget where we were at. It may have been, anyways. I can't remember. It was, it was three or four years ago, but uh, yeah, I know I made a putt to make a play to make a cut, and then I made the cut putt to make the 54 cut back when we had the MDF. So I just yeah. go back to those little things. Uh, tee shots I've hit on eight, on on certain tee shots. When I'm struggling my driver, I think about what it felt like and um, visualizing that. And so as a young golfer, you can go back to what you've done great to help you get over maybe a, a scary situation on the golf course or something. And that's what I do when I'm out there. Yeah, put an exclamation point on that at the end. I loved it. The anchoring that as a critical skill. And like you say, it doesn't need to be shots that are hit under the most excruciating of pressure or shots in the 18th hole to win a tournament, et cetera, et cetera. It's just things that stay in your mind. That's fantastic. Gold is what it is. You mentioned the work you do and the stability, the consistency in your ball striking, and you've been a stroke gain driver, a gain 
you've been a positive stroke gain driver for 17 out of the last 18 season. And I'm essentially the same thing in approach play. And I think that speaks to what you were just describing before. And the question that I've got inside of that consistency is something that you alluded to. I love to play golf, but I also love to practice the shots. And for players that don't have the 17, 18, 20 years of wisdom that you have competing at such an elite level, I think the paradox or the dilemma that we face is, well, how much do I need to work at my skill to, let's say, hone a swing position? Like we had a conversation on the range. Actually, no, it wasn't on the range. It was in the golf course at Muirfield on that Tuesday practice round right before you finished, I think, second or third last year at, year at Muirfield. And you showed me that small adjustment that you and Randy recognized when you flew back home. And that small adjustment required some sort of diligent practice, a volume of shots, not just one, maybe a hundred, maybe 500, who knows. But I want you to try and explain to the listeners how you decide when you're done hitting on the range and when to shift that into quote unquote play mode and start playing with something on the line, whether that's a can of Coke or a money game with the guys. I've never been a big practicer. I've always thought I get more out of my game on the golf course because I see more shots there and you hit more shots there. I can sit on the range, hit driver, 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 and hit it perfect while the driver's 80 miles wide. So I get more of my game playing. But there's a lot of times what I'll do is um, we're sitting on the range working, Randy and I, is we'll think about the course the next week. And we'll sit there and I'll go, we'll go through each tee shot. And so there now I'm visualizing, okay, for instance, this year at Sawgrass for the players, we sat on the range and worked on that tee shot on number one. And then I know number two has been a hard one for me and some three wood. So we took up the three wood and hit a lot of three wood draws. And I went through every tee shot for every hole that I needed to hit a tee shot on for about an hour, hour and a half or so. But it's just visualizing that shot in a practice session before I get to the tournament. And so I'll do a lot of that on the, on the, when I'm practicing, I'll go to tournaments and I'll be practicing a little bit with James and um, I'll start visualizing certain tee shots. You know, I'll ask him, you know, what about this hole? And so we'll start hitting that, working on that tee shot. So I'm actually trying to visualize certain shots on the driving range. And that's the practice I do on a range. I mean, I, I mean, anybody can go out there and just hit pound balls, pound balls. But to me, I'm wasting my time. I've always said I like to practice with a purpose. And that purpose, that time may be 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes. Because I've always said if I hit, if I flush three or four eight irons in a row, why would I want to hit another one? <laughs> right. Yeah. Figure out a way to hit I've a bat, always, right? I've always, I've always, that's been my approach. Now, a lot of guys want, they love to practice. They love to hit balls for hours, whatever. But, and I'll finish around the golf on tour. If I play well, I'm, I'm done. I'm like, what am I going to go find wrong? I've had a great day of golf. I'm going to go to bed confident that I just played well. Let's get up the next morning knowing I played well and let's go the next day. It's not going to be the same day, but I have that confidence, that feeling of a great round. Whereas, to me, I, I'm afraid I'd, I'd, I'd probably go to the range and find something wrong or start hitting balls and go, oh, why am I hitting it fat now? Why am I doing this? Well, you just shot 65. What are, mm -hmm. we, what are we doing here? In the event you don't shoot 65, in the event you finish a round of golf and you're disappointed with the performance and you realize there's a problem, what will you do? What action will you take? What I do is I look, if I played a round, it wasn't great, but I, I look at a couple of shots I hit, I'll go hit those shots on the range. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a seven iron into a part three, or maybe I hit the last two tee balls a little rough. Let's go hit half a bag of balls of drivers, you know, and that's what I'll do. A lot of times if I had a really bad round of golf, I'm not afraid to say, let's go. I'm just done. That's just, <laughs> there's no reason to go. I'm done dwelling on it. Cause I go oh, to the dear. range, I'll be upset. I'll probably get on the range and hit it good and be upset even more. So exactly. I'm like, you know what? let's go. I'm done. <laughs> there's wisdom so in that, right? There's a lot of I mean, wisdom in that. <laughs> there's guys are different how they approach things. And maybe it has to do with, you know, little old, being a little older. I just don't wear myself out as much and, and with that being said, I find myself having more energy on Saturday and Sunday mm -hmm. because I'm hitting, I'm not, you know, grinding as much when I, I probably could practice a little more, but 
in my mind, I just played well. Nothing to really work on. Let's go relax. I just played pretty bad. I don't really want to think about it anymore. Let's go. So, and like I said, I may go work on a shot if I need to, but um, it all depends on how that day goes. You spoke about getting better at something every year. And then you mentioned working with Steve Stricker on your short game. And so I, I'm hoping you can indulge us a little bit and we'll dork out a, a little and hopefully talk technique because clearly something changed like in 2014 or so, because looking at the strokes gain, like if you're just a level strokes gained short game or putting, it's like a, a guaranteed top 25 for you because the ball striking is, is always so good. So clearly you identified short game as an area, an opportunity for improvement. What, what did you do? What did Steve Steve, have you do, or is that what you would point to as, as being the catalyst to that improved performance around the greens? This year, for sure. But a lot of things that Randy has always worked on my short game is my my wrist hinge. I get a little down cock a lot in my uh, yeah. in my chipping, which you lose the face angle, you lose control of the spin, and everything else. So we had just finished work day. I just played two of the worst rounds of, of my year this year and uh, at Memorial in Columbus. And so I was like, you know what? I went home, saw Randy. We worked on a little head control my, on my takeaway. I played with a shut club face going back and it was more shut than it ever had been. So we saw that, worked on that, got in the club, opened up a little more. And then I played nine holes with Stricker at, um, at Muirfield during Memorial. And I said, look, my sh-. he goes, what's going on? And so I said, well, it's my bunker game, my short game. And we got in there and he started working on open the club face at a dress in the bunker. And that opened up even more and just, you know, smack the sand, I guess you could say. Um, it's almost like when he worked with Tiger, he said, he goes, yeah, you have an open club face, but open it more on the way back take that club and open it up and throw it in the ground. And I said, okay. So we kept working on it. And like, you know, I'm hitting these bunker shots that are spinning that I've never hit in my life. <laughs> it had to feel like a triple I, somersault to you though, right? And I kind of took it to the chipping green as well. And it kind of worked. So uh, that was this year, but then just over the past year, past years, just practice working on soft hands, watching him mainly. If you watch Steve Stricker from a hundred yards and in, there's no movement at all. It's just pure arms and it's, so good. And so uh, I do a lot of watching and then try to emulate a lot of players. Like I said, I watched Jordan play a lot of practice rounds with him. I, I watched his short game and and I'll pick his brain every once in a while as well. You know, as even though I'm 44, 18 years on tour, I'm still a student of the game mm-hmm. and I still want to learn. And cause I still think there's a lot of great golf left in my, in my career. Yeah. Uh, there's a phrase, excellence is demonstrated behavior, and you've spoken to so many of them. One of them is just that observational skill that you spoke to right there. I'd, I'd actually want to go back a little bit, if that's okay. And maybe this kind of links to another conversation thread that I did want to go back and pull on, and that's learning to win. But in the in the context of kind of learning to win, there's the physical piece that you grind your tail off on on the off weeks of whether it's in the gym or it's on the range or it's playing the game of golf. But then there's also the piece that's in this five or five and a half inches up here that you've worked really hard on as well. So can you take us inside the mind of Ryan Palmer, inside the the work that you've done with your coach, Neil Smith? And maybe maybe a simple way to say this is what were your two or three wishes when you started with Neil and how far along the road of developing that psychological skill set of high performance um, uh, thinking have you come? As far as goals I set with him, I really didn't. I just I know I needed something. James and I talked about it, and a lot of it was just self-talk and how I talked to myself, how 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 I treated myself. I never treated James bad after shots. I never treated my wife bad after golf. You know, one rule I have with Jennifer is: thirty minutes after a round, I'm done with it. So you know, I need thirty minutes to cool off, whatever. But with Neil, we just started working on you know my self-talk, how I treat myself. But 
the one thing I always go back to what he always taught me and what he's taught me is all is um, every shot should have a beginning and every shot should have an ending. So you're visualizing a shot, you pull the club out, you're going through your routine, talking to James, you know, getting all the things you need to know. And then if you pull a shot off and you hit like you wanted to, give yourself a pat on the back, think about it. And then when the club hits the bag, you're done. Mm-hmm. So if you, if you hit a bad shot, maybe rehearse it, think about what you did wrong. Maybe it's okay. The wind caught us, James, or whatever. But as soon as that club goes in the bag, it's over. Now let's go talk about something, go to the next shot, whatever. So I've learned that a lot as far as thinking every club, every shot has a beginning and an end. That way I'm not dwelling on this shot as I get to the next. And, you know, that has a lot to do with when I'm out there. I've, I've learned to just be calm and more at peace with myself. And that's what I found that the most these past several months is how at ease I am on the golf course. Uh, just happy. My family life's great, and I'm just enjoying playing the game. And um, he always talks to me each week. You know, how's my week off? What do you think? And then after a tournament, what'd you think? And, you know, we'll go back to certain moments. And he's really good about telling me how calm I looked on the golf course, how relaxed I was. Nothing bothered me. He couldn't tell if I was playing bad or playing good. And he would also say, look, you're spending a lot of energy here. I can I notice, you know, you're getting upset over, you know, some things you can't control. And that's one thing I've learned is how to control those moments. And, when I get down, I, I keep telling myself, I know I'm going to make three or four birdies. It's just a matter of when. So um, I've never let those down moments take me down like they used to in years past. And, uh, you know, I was just, just chatter, a lot just talking. And I mean, I could be here all day trying to talk to you about what it is I feel <laughs> and what we're going through. But, uh, like I said, inside yeah, the mind. <laughs> yeah. But he's, uh, it's been great. It's, it's, he keeps things a little, a little more lighter. I know he and James talk a lot. And it's also huge having James next to me. He, James is quick to, to tell me to quit being a baby or, yeah. If I'm getting mad, he's quick to say, like, I remember one time he told me, I mentioned why well, I'm out here. And he pretty much said, well, let's go. The clubhouse is right there. And so <laughs> those kind of moments, you know, walking through a parking lot saying, I'm tired of this putter. I can't, I'm just done. He goes, here, he pulls out a bag and gives it to him. He goes, break it. So I broke it, gave it back to him. He goes, hey, that's done. Let's go. Brilliant. You know, it's just a little Absolutely bit like that. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So it, it takes more than a few guys to, uh, to keep me on my, on my toes. But, uh, yeah, it has been great. Just keep me, um, more loose and, a lot of my routine I'm doing prior to each round and um and going through the the mental aspects it's uh because I, I mean a lot of times he, he wants to know how I'm feeling before rounds and I'm like I'm fine I mean I don't want to think about anything right. too negative yet <laughs> exactly. you know I haven't done it yet but uh <laughs> you know he's, he's always he's real, he's real curious on prior to each round you know do you have any concerns for the round and of course I never have concerns because the last thing I need is a concern but he's always good at, and I think about that prior to each round so then it kind of gets me going okay, I got these shots, you know, I'm kind of thinking, how am I going to put today? I didn't do what I wanted yesterday. So I don't talk about it before rounds, but it gets me thinking about it. And then mm-hmm. it kind of puts me a little more focus, I think, on the golf course. So nice. Uh, it's nice having that there for sure. Yeah. You'd mentioned earlier that um, there's this addiction to winning. There's this flood of whether it's endorphins or whatever it is that you feel when you hit this great shot and you hear your name in the crowd. And that's what you quote unquote live for and practice hard for it um, fuels your passion for the game. And you've played an amazing career to date and you're playing some of the best golf of your career, at least equal to the best golf of your career. But not to throw a wet blanket over the conversation, the question does beg, what does Ryan Palmer need to do to compete and contend better in majors than, than you have to this day? You know, it's funny. I will go back to Neil Smith. You know, his biggest thing that we talked about beginning this year is, uh, you know, we need to come up with a new narrative. You know, I've always thought I struggle in majors. I always, I have never played well and I've been vocal about it. And he goes, well, now we're going to change that narrative to whereas you belong there. You know, you can play well there. And it's time to go. And I tell you what, I've never felt more calm and comfortable 
in a big event this year until, you know, when I played the, when I'm the masters first time back since 15 and it felt like a normal golf tournament. Uh, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of days I played. And so, uh, I never once was nervous, uh, uncomfortable. I knew I could hit each shot I needed to hit. And, um, you know, aside from two swings, I had top 10 golf the whole week. And so, um, but things like that, he's, he's, he's teaching me. And that's one part I needed to do to get over that to that next level of winning and competing in, in those major championships is just, and it goes back to, you know, believing in myself, knowing I belong there. And, um, I haven't had as many opportunities as, as a lot of players, but I know I can do it. And, um, and just not try so hard at it, I guess, and treat it as a normal event. You know, when I go to the next week, Kiowa or next week at Kiowa, to me, it needs to be I'm like, I'm playing colonial and it's a normal golf tournament. It's just happens to be the PGA championship, but as yeah. long as I can take that out of it and just and play my game, you know, I know I can go out and give myself a great chance to, to contend hopefully. And, um, yeah. that's the one thing keeping me from being that top 15, top 10 world ranking player that mm-hmm. I know I can be. And wind and Bermuda grass, I think is what they've got out there as best as conditions and wind can work to a, a kid from Texas's advantage. It should certainly help at least in some measure. What about the open championships that you have played? Have you found that they present such a unique test that there are shots that you don't quite have in your arsenal yet. And therefore you've got to go back to the Steve Strick pixie dust bag and get another little sprinkle. I love the opens. They're fun. Um, I don't think I can't hit there. I guess if there's one shot that I probably would struggle and I need to work on more when I'm over there is more of that bump and run mm-hmm. from further out, uh, short around the greens and stuff. But other than that, I mean, there's so many shots you can hit. The stingers, the low. I mean, there's it's a golf tournament. You cannot go over there and go, okay, I'm going to play this way and I'll be ready for it. No, you can't. I mean, you can throw it all out the window. It's. I, mean, I remember playing St. George, the first open I played, I'm hitting five iron from 150, 160. I'm like, how do you play this? I mean, <laughs> so like the good old days you, back in Amarillo. <laughs> you can take a lot of skill out, out of play and a lot of luck's going to be involved, but, um, mm-hmm. but I enjoy the, that type of golf when it's just 10 years back and let's go. Cause it's going to be hard. And you know, a lot of guys, I feel like I, I, I've got beat before because I, I know I'm a grinder and I know I can not let the elements get to me. And I'll, um, as far as good, I, I'm loving that, those type of tournaments today. So, mm-hmm. uh, the opens are so hard to get ready for cause you never know what you're going to get with that weather. So, uh, it's a matter of just kind of getting there and seeing what the what the winds bring to you. Right. <laughs> I'll tie two parts of our conversation here together. I, I followed you. You played with a client that I coached for 36 holes at Portrush. And on the first tee, and, and tying it back to what you said about staying calm and the toughness and the self-talk, the first tee, I can't remember if you hit it out of bounds or if it was really close to going out of bounds on Thursday morning, but I remember it was a rough start for you. I think you were you were at least two or three Both over days. for the first couple. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, and I had it so right on I Thursday remember, left on Friday. <laughs> there we go. So I did remember that correctly then. So, but I'm watching you and it was like, it was like no one could tell if they were watching you where your ball had been, if that was the case. And then I think if I remember it right, you, you eagled the the short par four, I think, and then made a couple of the birdies. And all of a sudden you're like back to one under par or a couple under. And so that stood out to me as I'm observing as a coach, the quickness of the bounce back and the toughness and the self-talk that we've got to be the things that go on in your head when you start a big round poorly. And that's always a question that we ask is, well, what do you say to yourself? And I know that that's probably something that you can draw on on the flip side when we talk about self-talk, what do you say, what goes on in your mind when you have an incredible start to a round, when things are going really, really well, where we know that some players may get uncomfortable with being that far under par or having it going good and want to finish strong. What's the self-talk sound like then when things are really good? Yeah. I mean, even when you're playing bad, you just hit, you double the first hole and it's like, 
there's 17 holes left. I mean, it's just the first hole. I mean, there's times I've I've bogeyed the first, birdied the second, or and I've I walk on three T and tell James, oh, I just made two pars. Let's go. You know, <laughs> right. moments, moments like that. So, but as far as getting off to good starts, when you birdie the first three holes, it's how can we birdie the fourth? How can we birdie the fifth? And <laughs> I've done it before. And one thing I probably find myself more times than not, unfortunately, is I do get those good starts and tend to not be able to get to that seven, eight, nine hundred par round as I used to a lot more often. So maybe you get a little more tentative at times, but the main thing I try and do now is just, I'm digging deep trying to shoot nine under now. If I'm eight, I'm trying to shoot 10 under from nine, you know? And that's the one thing you keep going is just, just keep attacking, keep attacking. And and then when I'm not playing well, it's just telling myself, I know I'm going to make four birdies today. I look at my stats. I average four point something around. So what we know we're going to make four birdies. So let's just eliminate the, the, the big, the big mistakes. And, uh, you know, if I if I bogey a par five, let's say the second hole is a par five and I make bogey and I just birdie, I parred the first hole and I birdie the third hole. Well, we just made three pars in a row as we would look at it. So I'm not mm. dwelling on the bogey in the easy hole and birdie in our hard, our hard hole. I just kind of look at it as, well, we just made three pars. Let's go. No big deal. And uh, that way you're not dwelling on that one bad bad hole. And uh, one bad shot, one bad hole can turn a, a good round into a bad round real fast. So um mm-hmm. You know, that's the one thing I always tell myself. I mean, I may not be very vocal about it with James, but yeah, I'm very calm inside. You know, I may be not playing well, but you can't tell. And that's that's my goal with myself. I want people to, to realize he's 300 and always three over. They, well, I can't tell what he's doing, <laughs> you know? Right and so um, it keeps me calm all day. You'd uh, just referenced going low there. And let's exclude your own accomplishments, which are many. And let's phrase this question as best seat in the house. Is there a, a shot, a conversation, or better yet, a round of golf that you've witnessed that stands out in your mind as amazing and you're glad that you witnessed it with having the best seat in the house? There's one that eats at me more and more a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call it the greatest round, but just some of the things that were done, and you probably know what I'm talking about. It was Charles Schwab Challenge oh Colonial. Yeah. Uh, and it was, uh, I, didn't, I didn't mean for you to bring that up. I didn't mean to get under your no, skin. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, it, it just, it wasn't under my skin. No, it was just, it's fun to watch because I love watching Jordan play. I love watching what he does. And me, him, it was himself, my, me and myself, Jordan and Webb and the group. And, um, but just the putts he made yeah. coming down the stretch. I still, to, to this day, the putt he made on 16 has never been made. And I don't think it ever will be made again. <laughs> and then I need to put a plaque on the green then. And then I say this, the, the shot he hit on 17 this year, if he hit that shot this year during COVID, that ball's in the middle of 14 fairway. <laughs> <laughs> and he still and chips, chips it into in, the middle of 14 fairway. Chips it in. So uh, <laughs> things like that, just watching those kind of moments, I, I remember. And there's multiple moments, multiple rounds. So I can't mm-hmm. really look at one round saying, oh, my gosh. So uh, Sure. But I, I've taken a lot of – I mean, when you have a 17-year career, you see a lot of great rounds. And yeah. I've seen a lot of, a lot of great stuff. Yeah, and, and I, th- I think that's a good place that that we'll end it here, Brian. Uh, we appreciate you spending uh, nearly an hour with us on Mother's Day. I know you probably got better things to be doing, but yeah. um, uh, so I'll, I'll speak for you. She's yelling at me right now. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get you out of trouble. I mean, I, I'll speak for, for Cameron here. I know we get so fired up to have these conversations, especially with a guy that's been doing it as long as you have, as well as you have. As coaches, we're, we're just excited to learn something. And I'm really appreciative and have a lot of gratitude that you hung out with us for a little while. And I guess we'll see you soon. We'll see you either at Byron or, or Kiowa here. We'll see you tomorrow. 
You got it. I'll <laughs> yeah. see you tomorrow. Hey, Thanks, RP, guys. RP, I'll finish it off real quick with something I remember hearing probably the first week I was in um, in West Texas, in Lubbock, Texas. And it was in reference to someone I met and they called that person one of the goodest of the good guys. And you're definitely that. So thanks for sharing yeah. your time with us. <laughs> I appreciate it, guys. You got it. Cheers, buddy. Bye-bye. Thanks, Cheers, man. Guys. See ya. See you later. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. We're also pretty active on Instagram, so follow at Altus Performance, and you can also follow on Twitter at Team Altus. If you haven't done so, please hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, share it with others, and be sure to stay tuned to future episodes of Earn Your Edge. Thanks for listening.